Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Vic, do you think you might have ADHD? Well, listeners keep emailing me telling me that they think I do, so probably. Mind you, listeners also email us saying we talk too much about your mum's feet. So what do they know? Yeah, fair enough. I honestly had no idea about the connection between overdrinking and ADHD until we started this podcast. About 40% of people that have had any sort of drinking issues also apparently have ADHD. Whenever we chat to ex-drinkers, this comes up more than you'd believe. If you have ADHD or suspect you might or just want to learn about this link, then we would encourage you to check out the I Have ADHD podcast. It's the place where adults with ADHD find research-based information, validation and tons of support. This is the best way to feel less alone and hear some of the answers to the questions you've been sitting with for too long. You'll hear detailed descriptions of what it means to have ADHD and enjoy interviews with the foremost experts in the industry so that you don't have to read those ADHD books that are collecting dust on your shelf. Yeah. Listen to the I Have ADHD podcast and learn how ADHD affects every aspect of your life. From the boardroom to the bedroom. In the podcast, you'll also hear about their ADHD coaching programme, which is called Focused. Focused is made up of three pillars, courses, coaching and community. It is designed to help you build your own self-improvement programme and is perfect for the ADHD brain. And you can get $50 off the course just by using the code SOBER, S-O-B-E-R. So if you're tired of feeling stuck and don't know where to start, listen to the I Have ADHD podcast. The kettle's boiled, Vic. Great. Perfect timing. Just a dash of milk for me, please, mate. Here you go. Shall we get started, then? Have you ever woken up on a Sunday morning and said, I'm never drinking again, and then found yourself waving 50 bucks at a barman by happy hour? Are you wondering why everyone else can stop at one, while you head to a dodgy after-party with a weird bloke called Disco Dave? If so, it might be time to take a deeper look at your relationship with your reliable social crutch, alcohol. On each episode, we'll investigate our own dysfunctional dealings with booze and find out if it's possible to stop this deeply ingrained habit before things get too messy. Yep, we're going to open up a shame shed of humiliating drinking stories to help you understand why waking up from a booze coma each weekend with a kebab sticking out of your top pocket might actually be negatively impacting your health. Hamish and I are here to delve into what it's like being sober, an unwanted warts and all look into why giving up those cheeky pints or putting down those mummy wines will make you feel happier, help your anxiety and mental health and turn you into the most sparkly, authentic version of you. Won't that mean I become boring though, Vic? Well, Hamish, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm Victoria Vanstone. I'm Hamish Adams-Cairns. And this is Sober Awkward. So, Vic, no chit-chat this episode. I feel like it would be a bit remiss of us to talk about funny shit that's happened this week and then try and introduce a serious episode. Well, that's good because no funny shit has happened this week. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, actually, you know what? I could tell you something that's not funny 
that has happened this week to me. Go on. And in a way, I think I wanted to save this to tell you on the podcast. Okay. Because I think in a way, it's a little victory for you oh, over excellent. me. Okay, good. Because oh, yeah. you've slowly been trying to sort of draw me into boring shit that sober people like. Yes. Yesterday, I spent the whole day gardening and I fucking loved it. Oh, yes. And I never thought I would say that sentence. I'm not even at that stage yet. No, you're not. You've overtaken I'm me in the sober than you. You are more sober than me today. I am better sober than you. <laughs> you win in the sober okay. race today. <laughs> so, but let's not be funny. Last week's episode was all about the drinking cultures across different professions. So in following on from that, we want to take a deeper look into a career that we know absolutely nothing about. Typical of us, really. True. So what we're talking about is the drinking that goes on in the armed forces, which seems a very appropriate episode, given that what is going on in the world as we record this in the end of 2023, when there's loads of horrible stuff going on in armies around the world. Yeah. So we want to look at three different aspects of this topic. Firstly, we want to take a look at its long-term effects that seem to be felt years after someone leaves the surface. We will introduce you to some of the help that is available. And perhaps most importantly for our Sober Awkward listeners, you will hear from some professionals about how you can best help someone you love through an alcohol use disorder, whether they are ex-military or not. Do you know much about the army, Vic? What, what do you think? Do you think I know about the army, I Hamish? I know that you certainly have not served, but you might have had friends or family who've spent some time in it. Or was it just purely what you've seen on Band of Brothers? Yeah. I don't know much about the army, Hamish, <laughs> basically, is what I'm trying to say. It's a world that I've never, ever stepped into. I imagine it's very tight-knit with an obvious hierarchy in place. And seeing as I hate authority, I would never have lasted a day. Hmm. My local boot camp is about all I can manage. But honestly, I think it's not only the hard physical work that would have killed me in the army, but also the mental strain, of which I think there are so many factors being shouted at, wanting to climb ranks, living abroad, fitting in, isolation. I'm sure also there are still many really old-fashioned views in the army. You can probably tell me about this a bit later on, Hamish, but especially when it comes to equality, gender and sexuality. I think going in the army should be a safe and supportive place, but I guess that's not everyone's experience. All I know is that I would be crying into my steel toe cap boots on the first day. What about you? I like that aspect of the army, like the nice boots, yes. the well-made beds. Yeah. And I could, I, I could certainly iron a good shirt. That aspect of the army, I'd be great at. Okay, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be great at any no, of those things. I don't make bit. beds, I don't do ironing. No, you don't wear boots that and often I don't, either. I don't polish shiny boots. I'm trying to think of something in the army that you'd be good at. <laughs> I think you might have a bit of a mission on your hands. Oh. By the end of the podcast, Hamish, you need to That's come up with challenge. something. That is your challenge. Come up with something in the army that I would be good at. Okay, fine. Um, so for me, my first introduction to it was I went to, I followed my brother to school. And my first day there, he said, whatever you do, don't join the CCF. I still don't really know what CCF stands for, something cadet forces. Right. Um, but it's basically like the little army at school, which makes it sound pathetic. Mini but soldiers. they would go out in the middle of the night and camp. And it was, I went to school in Yorkshire, it was snowing and freezing. So a bit like scouts, but a bit more extreme. Yeah. And yeah. my brother was just like, just don't do it. He had, he had to do it in his first year. It was compulsory. And it wasn't compulsory when I went. He said, do not do it. Um, but my dad was in the army. So I do have sort of his stories. And his are generally positive. So pretty much all of my brothers and my godfathers are all best friends that he made during the army. All of his best stories about times during the army. Um, he did almost die on a helicopter in Northern Ireland. He was meant to be on it. He was told 
get on that helicopter. At the last minute, he was told not to get on it, wow. and it got blown up. Gosh. So yeah, he does have that traumatic story. And But he's a passionate historian, particularly about the First World War, he's written a book on it. So he is so into it. Like he is so into army and war and all wow. of that. Super, super pro it and just loves it and is still in touch with all the guys he's in the army with and he's sort of chairman of a old boys army thing and they have lunches all the time. Mm. So he's very pro it. The way that our family was different to others, amongst millions of others, is most people go on holidays to beaches, right? That's a famous British holiday resort. We would go to battlefields. Oh, yeah, classic. So we'd go to the Somme battlefield. That's yep. Dad's favourite battlefield. I don't know if you have a favourite battlefield. But Waterloo. That's why, yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah. Have you been? Yeah, I've been to Waterloo. I've, I've visited a few battlefields I in see, my day. You know your shit. Well, interestingly enough, I say, Hamish, you've reminded me. Mm. I say that I haven't had any family members or don't know much about the army. But my great uncle Tom was a prisoner of war taken from Singapore, and he was in Kanchanaburi in northern Thailand, where he was prisoner. And he survived the Second World War because he used to dress up as a woman and play the guitar and entertain the Japanese troops. And he was one of the only people that survived. And I actually went Whoa. to Kanchanaburi um, not that long ago. To go and find where he lived and where he was a prisoner of war. Wow. And he was a fascinating character who moved to America after after the war, but he was very, very traumatised. My yeah. great-grandpa was a prisoner of war in Japan. Oh, really? He was the only one to keep his teeth. Everyone else lost their teeth. And my grandma can never really forgive... Japan for for you know, the man that came back from Japan was a different man to the one yeah. that she you know, th was her dad. I think that happens. And she sort doesn't of lived it? with it. Um, the other one of my favourite dad's battlefields, if you were wondering, yeah. was the uh, the Battle of Isen Luana, okay. which is in KwaZulu Natal. Have you ever seen the film Zulu? Zulu, right? Yes. So I that's Rourke's Drift. Yeah. And so Rourke's Drift happened the day after the Battle of Isen Luana. So yeah, we went there to do a, a, another holiday. But that's it, cool though. I find that you know probably the best holiday historical. ever had. Actually. Yeah. The best holiday ever had was yeah. KwaZulu. I've just realised that I do have another army story. Ah, look at you. <laughs> you did not think before this episode. But my great-great-grandfather, apparently, you know this story about the French in the First World War and they were in the trenches and they put the white flags up and they had a game of football. Yeah, on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. Yeah. Apparently my great-great-grandfather was the instigator of that. He was a general in the army and he made everyone wave the white flags and he was part of that okay. yeah so it's, i do have army history in my family and of course my dad did national service we're still of a generation where our parents probably had to do national service when they were younger i don't think that stopped until the 1960s so yeah you're basically an army family i'm basically in the army you've forgotten I? everything that you know about your family they're all connected to the army in some way <laughs> yeah. i basically am in the army myself <laughs> Still can't think of something you'd be good at in the army. No, come on, keep thinking, keep thinking. You could dress up as a girl and sing songs. Yes, well, I, I, I am a girl. You're not though. a great singer. But a... You could dress up as a girl. My mouth trumpet would go down very well there in the you army. Go. There's the thing that you would do when they're all low after a day. You go in there, and you bring up the morale by getting yeah. dressed up as a girl and doing your mouth trumpet. Entertaining the Japanese troops. That's it. What have you got for us? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this one again. Great. <laughs> Right, it sounds like we need to do a little research here then. Now, clearly stats don't tell the whole story, but we have found these to actually be quite concerning. According to a paper published last year by the National Institute of Health, drinking has become a common and accepted behaviour in military culture, surpassing the use in general population. Right, so there are two things I want to say about that opening statement. God, 
feel like a lawyer when I say You look like statement. a lawyer. Thank you. I've dressed up in a suit. Apart uh, from the fact you haven't got any pants on, you look like a lawyer. And my willy's out. <laughs> the first is that we are sure some armed forces are better than others, and some of the military will be sober in comparison to others who might have a problem with booze. You know, it's sort of a reflection of society, and we're not here to generalise. But the second point is that this stat is hardly surprising. We're talking typically about a group of young people, possibly in their teens or early 20s, joining a high-stress environment. I mean, how bad would our dream have been if we joined the army it's Bad. inevitable plus it's also important to consider the type of people who join the armed forces and you'll actually hear a lot more about that a little bit later in this episode depending on where you get your information victims of ptsd are far more likely to develop alcoholism to self-medicate symptoms of trauma the alcohol rehab guide website suggests that up to 40 percent of men and women in the u.s who have ptsd also have an alcohol use disorder, whereas the research done by Banyan Mental Health indicates the number to be closer to 46.4%. It's a huge amount. Huge. Now, one of the things that I found out during my conversations with both of today's guests, actually, is that that stat is not quite as simple as it seems. It's not a case of PTSD causes an alcohol use disorder. Many of these people may have overdrunk before they were diagnosed. And today's media is actually a little bit too quick to jump on the bandwagon of blame PTSD for everything. Finally, we know that alcohol misuse has negative impacts on your mental health. There is an acute suicide crisis among vets. I learned from Prince Harry's documentary on the subject that the number could be as high as 22 a day in the United States. Again, the exact numbers of this are difficult to track down, as you will find out from today's first guest. The obvious question is, is there a link between a drinking culture in the army, poor mental health and these worrying rates of suicide? It's impossible to say for sure, but what we can say is that this is a real issue that is affecting those in the armed forces and their loved ones around the world every day. Given neither of us is qualified to speak on the subject, we have recruited two wonderful humans who have first-hand experience. Now, obviously, this is too big and complex an issue to cover entirely in just one sober, awkward episode. It would probably take a whole series. But I'm really proud of the conversations we've put together for you here. These two guests were wonderful, as you will soon find out. The first is Helen Bennett. She's a sober, awkward listener who watched her brother Matt struggle with the effects of alcohol and PTSD for years after... After he left the army, she bravely reached out to us and asked to tell his story in the hope that it might help others. Helen spoke to a few friends before our chat that served with Matt in order to hear some stories that he never told her directly. And that is where we will begin. I had an interesting chat with his friend who actually his friend Brasso is in mentioned in a lot of um, books about the Falklands. He's quite um, he's quite a legend actually. But I had a long chat with Brasso yesterday, and I said, "Just tell me, I'm doing this podcast." I said, "Tell me the things that I don't know." Like I knew when I went and saw Matt, he was you know we'd have all these boozy weekends, and mm. he was crazy, and I knew what he was like when he was melting down and drinking liters of of stuff. Um, but I didn't really know the early the early part and. Um, he was telling me some shocking stuff about the Marines. Now I know we're talking forty plus years ago, yeah. but it was it was amazing. I'll tell you this one, right? I don't know if this is right. He said, he said, I've had a chance to think about it. He said, we paid. They were paid seven pounds a week, the Marines back then. He said we were we paid fifty p a week when we joined into a pot, right? And after 
was it six weeks after a period of time they were all taken into a hall they had to lie down under a keg of beer which was operated by a foot pump and they were told to open their mouth and they were shouted at glug 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 you're a fucking marine now you drink and i was just unbelievable yeah Yes, it started off at fun. And you go, well, where does the 17-year-old boy start or stop? And where does the Marine active encouragement, active participation, and very frowned upon if you didn't do it? Well, I imagine the day that you join the Marines, that's the end of childhood. That's You can't act like a teenager here. You can't act like a normal 17-year-old. You're going to be treated like an adult like the rest of them, including drinking like someone... 15 years older than you I imagine is is what would be expected but he was 19 when he saw action in the Falklands quickly followed by a horrible stint in Northern Ireland can you remember speaking to him during that time you know what were his stories from the battlefield none he didn't Mm -hmm. talk about it but it's later it's later that it came out and I don't know if you've ever found this that and I and I found it in myself as well. You know, you go through things as a young person, Hamish. I think it's not until you get to your forties or fifties that it all starts tipping out because you can't you can't keep a lid on things forever. And that's what I think happened with Matt. You said that Matt's adrenaline was in overdrive from that point on. And he said, this is a sort of heartbreaking quote that you remembered of his, which was, those who say they aren't affected by the experience are either liars or psychopaths, which is, which is sad that it's probably yeah. true. Did you, did you notice yeah. any changes when he came back from that? You know, did you, you know, I know it was a long time ago and you were young yourself, but did you notice a different Matt come back from the Falklands and Northern Ireland to the one that left you at 17? Yes, I, I mean, he came back without a scratch on his body, which was incredible given some of the experiences that in the situations that he was in. He came back a quieter version for a little while. And then, of course, we wouldn't see each other for a couple of three months, maybe more at a time because he was away. But I did, I do think now that I look back and reflect on it, Hamish, I think his drinking ramped up after, ramped up, it was, it was bad enough, but ramped up after he saw active service. And then his behaviour got crazier. I remember going down to visit him one weekend and uh, no mobile phones in those days. And I turned up at the bus station. He wasn't there, but he'd sent two Marines to come and, and meet me, meet my little sister mm-hmm. at the at the bus station because he'd crashed the car and he was in hospital and they wouldn't let him um, uh, discharge himself because he had concussion. So he, he jumped out of the hospital window in his pyjamas and we went off partying for the mm-hmm. weekend. Now, why I thought that was okay... But as a young, you know, but that was always my big brother. That's what he did. So he was always a little reckless and a little rebellious even before he joined the army. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I think so. I think that was his character, but it just ramped up. And I think you take a character like that. And I would suggest, actually, someone might correct me, but I think a lot of people that join the Marines are a little bit crazy anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are running away from some, something, maybe. But I think they're of a certain character to want to do that in the first place. And then you throw booze into it and the pressure to be a man and man up and and drink, drink, drink. And it's frowned upon if you don't. It's not a good combination. Mm-hmm. 
When did he eventually leave the Marines? He served five years and when he left, he was sick to death of it. <laughs> he felt used and abused by them. Um, I know other people have completely different experiences, but he would never go to the reunions and he and he sold his war medals. He said, I'm not interested in it. It was a really tough regime. Um, I think Northern Ireland in some ways was worse than the Falklands. And I remember him writing to me, I was reading one of his letters the other day and it said on it, we, you know, we mean nothing to these people. We've been marching all day long. The helicopters didn't turn up to pick us up. Now we've got to march through the night. It's freezing cold. We're hungry, yada, yada, yada. And so in that respect, I just think he felt that as an individual, he didn't really count. It was just more, they just turn you into a fighting machine. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's that's what it is. That's, that's what, the job. That's what the armed forces is all about. That's the job, mm. yeah. And then, so he left five years later and then embarked on a criminal career, which I first read it, I thought, what? <laughs> Tell me how he ended up in, a, in a, like an infamous life of crime. <laughs> well, I think he, he did actually try to get a regular job, but he didn't really sort of fit in. And, and uh, so I think he, he thought about it for a while. He was a really good artist, actually. So he would do artist drawings for people, um, commissions for their pets and things like this he was a, he was a really good artist but um no he couldn't find a job that suited him so he thought it'd be a really good idea and bear in mind this is a long time ago now so 30 odd years ago where cannabis was a class uh was it a class b or a class a drug it was ridiculous hamish it was so high up there it was it was one down from heroin it was mad anyway so he thought it'd be a really good idea to uh, grow cannabis on a on a large scale and that's what he did so he had this sort of mad career that lasted quite a while until he got caught. He was he was a really smart guy. That he he got sent to jail um, because what he did was really big at the time, you know. And he was very forward thinking. He was he did part of this. Part of his cannabis growing was to provide CBD oil to people that were suffering. Mm. So you know he was giving back as well. And then when when he got caught and sent to jail, they sent him to jail for five years. What did he do? He wrote a book all about how to grow cannabis, you know. So he was a real rebel and everybody loved him. Unless you crossed him, then they didn't love him because he could be really scary. And uh, and, yeah. and that mask, that, that madness and craziness of his sort of Mel Thomas, Mr. Big cannabis uh, scenario, that, that covered his, you know, masked his PTSD for a long, long time. When that career came to an abrupt end, i.e. He, he was sent to jail... And, and he got out and he was like, well, what now? What, what do I do now? And I think that's that's when it, the, mm -hmm. the problems of PTSD really started. And his drinking went from, oh, that's Matt just being crazy to this is a, this is a problem now. I don't I don't know where we're going with this. Do you think there was an element of the rush, the rebelliousness, the adrenaline, the excitement of doing something illegal that sort of having left the army when that is the environment made him feel normal you yeah, know is it possibly. when you struggle to to adapt to civilian life I, you might crave that sort of extremism yeah, that the, yeah, a life you know, of crime I, I imagine gives you might have hit on a point there I'd never considered that before but um that's possibly that's possibly it and I think with his adrenaline being sort of pumped you know he was he was uh, he would often sweat 
they, I would notice this about him. He would sweat then when there wasn't really an occasion to be sweating, like it wasn't really hot. But now I look back, I think your adrenaline was mm-hmm. in overdrive. And then I think he would calm himself down with alcohol, but then he'd be in a real rush of doing whatever he was doing. Yeah, yeah, I think mm. you make a good point. Was he drinking heavily during those cannabis years? Or was he so busy trying to create this, This, you know, he had a job in between inverted commas that he didn't have the ability to sort of drink recklessly? I didn't witness drinking to the extreme. It <laughs> was heavy. It was heavy drinking. But we all sort of thought that was pretty normal. You know, we seem to be, you know, we we come from an army background. My parents were heavy drinkers and we sort of grew up with that. So to me, it didn't seem excessive. It was heavy, but it didn't seem excessive or a problem. Mm-hmm. It was it was when things quietened down, and he didn't have the he didn't have the rush of fighting wars, mm-hmm. <laughs> fighting with the police, you know, and doing what he was doing. That's that's when he that's when he hit the floor. And you said, you know, it got to the stage where he was drinking lethal bottles of whiskey, of absinthe. He was drinking pints of gin and tonic just around the house when when you was helping you with Renault's. He he tried to moderate as well, so he must have been aware of his of his alcohol. And what what you know when when he did try and moderate and try to put a lid on it, was he labelling himself a, someone who has a problem with alcohol, or was he just trying to cut down because? you know society says drinking absinthe is not okay what was his approach to trying to get sober then he 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 wasn't an unintelligent man he was a very smart man actually he knew he knew he had a Mm -hmm. problem with it and he knew he we we would both say oh i'm not drinking at the moment oh great how long have you gone for i've gone for two weeks so he Mm. would do that but he couldn't maintain it he couldn't maintain it because it's because he just kept reverting back to what he knew, what calmed him down, what he knew, what would what would get him back to sleep at night when he woke up having had terrible dreams, you know, mm-hmm. and what what he'd witnessed our parents doing, working, if you like, um, and then what he was encouraged to do in the Marines. So it, it was his jug of choice. You can trace how it's changing, how it was 17, yeah. it was fun, it was... Yeah forced to do it by the marines but it's a good time then you experience something traumatic and now you're drinking to get to sleep and to quieten down the nightmares and to to cope and to get through a day yeah. and that's obviously the danger of anyone who goes through anything traumatic and particularly i always think you know when there's a when there's a change in someone's circumstances so leaves the army is unemployed joins um starts a criminal yes. life that ends goes to prison that ends every time there's a crossroads there is a decision where you can either ramp up your drinking or you can stop altogether. And it sounds as if every crossroads that yeah. he met, sadly, he, he wasn't able to, to veer off onto the sober path for too long. It stepped down each time, each time, and it got steadily worse. And he was chaotic with it. It, it wasn't just Matt sitting at home, um, drowning his sorrows, you know, with a bottle of whiskey. He was chaotic. He would get in the car. He would... He would do crazy things. I remember once he went into a supermarket. This is actually quite funny. He went into a supermarket and decided it would be a really good idea to steal loads of legs of lamb. I'm like, 
how many legs of land do you need? You know, and then gets chased down the street by the security people and he's throwing legs of lamb at them and effing and blinding. And he was, it was nuts. It was just like, yeah. I'm like, why are you doing this? What's going on? You know? So it was, it was nuts. It was nutty stuff like that. Really sort mm. of off the wall. Would he listen to you when, when you brought something like that up? Or was he ever in a relationship with someone who was trying to get him to, to quieten down? No, he wasn't in a relationship, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> he, he had the odd... <laughs> a bit of a difficult date, wouldn't it? <laughs> he, he, did have the, he did have the odd relationship, but it didn't really last. And he would listen to me and he'd say, I know, I know, I know, but then he'd do it again. He needed professional help and he didn't talk to anybody and his life spiralled down as a result, in my view. Well, you said, you know, he wasn't diagnosed with PTSD until much, much later in his life when something quite yeah. extraordinary happened on the M5. Tell us, tell us what happened that day. Yeah, yeah. It, he, he got drunk, got in the car again. He was always losing his driving licence, got in the car again and he turned the car on its roof on the M5. How he clambered out of that wreck, I do not know. And he ran from the scene. And then he got home. Um, he went straight to the pub because he he then knew that uh, it because he wanted to cover up the fact that he was drink driving. So he went to the pub, downed a few pints, and when he got home, the police were outside his house with tasers. He's his response was, "You're fucking brave when they're not shooting back at you." And yeah, they arrested him. Okay, and was it at that point that? Combat Stress, which is a, a charity set up for veterans' mental health. Was it then that they stepped in and said, hang on a minute, this looks like PTSD, let us see if we can help? Yeah. Well, in fact, they can't, you know, this is the, this is the, 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 the ridiculousness of the situation is they can't step in. You have to approach them. Okay. Um, so he did. I said to him, Matt, this is what it's all about. You Finally, the penny dropped with me. I was like, oh my God, this is what it's all about. In that one sentence... Uh, it, it suddenly dawned on me that what was going on and um, he reached out to them and they're amazing. They are amazing people. But they uh, and he allowed them to come to his home. But Hamish, they can't come. He, he stopped seeing them after a couple of meetings and those meetings were really useful and he and he really found them helpful. But he, he refused to see them again and they can't do anything about that. He mm. has to join the party. They can't go knocking on his door. They, they they need his permission to do that. So he got his diagnosis from the doctor, but didn't seek professional help again after that. He just kept medicating with alcohol. What do you think stopped him? Is it is it because it's not brave or military like to go and seek help and talk about mental health? You know, what what were his reasons if he did enjoy those first two sessions to not carry on? Yeah, I think it's a lot to do with pride and maybe sort of marine pride still in him. You know, uh, it's not the thing that men do. They don't talk about their problems or their issues. And don't forget, we're talking, you know, we're talking sort of his experiences were 40 years ago. I hope that young lads today are a, a little more evolved because I think we talk about it more now, don't we? And I hope that they will go and find some help, you know, and reach out to somebody because this stuff will kill you. And, th and that's exactly what happened to Matt. It killed him. 
Yeah, so he eventually passed away age 56, wasn't it, to a heart attack. Um, yeah. I was sort of glad yeah. that this wasn't a story of ex-veteran commit suicide, but, you know, it was it was yeah. a heart attack which was very much connected to his drinking. Was it, Does he also have something wrong with his liver when in the post-mortem? Yeah, they, it, it's really funny. I was I always thought that um, when you drink as heavily as Matt did, that, you know, your, li- your liver will give out. But I understand it's more often heart attack or stroke that will kill you and that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened to matt he had a massive heart he went to bed one night had a massive heart he wobbled home from the bar went to bed had a massive heart attack never never woke up so i thank god it was quick but it's such a it's such a shocking thing to happen and what was funny a lot of people when i said my brother had died it was really interesting how a few people just assumed that he killed himself mm-hmm. and i said why would you think that but in a, in a way, Hamish, maybe he did. Yeah. You know, I read it and I thought, it's actually tragic because we're, we are all aware of the numbers of veterans who commit suicide. Like, that number is well reported. And we go, oh, we've got to do something about this, we've got to do something yeah. about this. What we don't consider is people like Matt, who certainly died as a result of, of, of PTSD and, and, you know, the effects of that, mm-hmm. but would not be counted amongst mm-hmm. the tally of ex-vet commit suicide. We need to focus on mental health. You know, that number is probably not reported. Yeah. So I thought, gosh, it, it, the numbers are much, much higher than we probably think of veterans who die as a result yeah. of, of, of some form of addiction, but don't take their own lives. Yes, I agree. It will kill them in some form or other if they don't do it to mm-hmm. themselves. And how long ago was that that Matt passed away? Four years. You you wrote quite sweetly that you think if he had been more aware of the quitlets, the podcasts, the sort of the ways that you could seek help, perhaps without yeah. having to see a therapist face to face. You know, the work that you could do by yourself with a book or a set of headphones. Yeah. Um, that that he might have had a better chance of giving up alcohol today. Yeah, I think so. I think if he'd have if he'd have accessed it. And four years ago, there wasn't so much going on online and people weren't really talking about it. There wasn't such a movement, a non-drinking movement as there is now. I think he would have accessed that and I think it would have helped him. When you look back at the small decisions that could have gone differently, that could have led to Matt being alive today, do you look at it as he should have been better taken care of in the Marines? Was it that, you know, there could have been more charities reaching out or, you know, he wasn't open enough to to the quitlet and all that, or the, or the quitlet and all that wasn't available. You know what what could have changed? You know, if you could turn back time, what could have changed that would have that would have saved him? Certainly, some sort of decompression after after uh, having seen active service, and that decompression not involving alcohol, talking to somebody. Mm you know, maybe in a group setting where everyone was encouraged to talk. And I mean, I know that between them, their mates would talk, but I think some more structured help to know that they're not, you know, this is this is normal to feel like this and you can start to feel better afterwards, that this is a normal process once you've been through something traumatic. So, yeah, I think I think there should be some responsibility taken by the armed forces to look after their to look after their boys and to not throw alcohol down their throats as a sign of manhood even i mean even i question myself why why didn't i why didn't i talk to him more about it and it really was not until it reached crisis point 
And I remember one Christmas, he, he, he got really, really drunk. It was horrible. And he ended up passing out on the, he, he would actually laugh at this. He ended up actually passing out on the kitchen floor. And we had to step over him every time we wanted to go into the kitchen because I couldn't lift him. He was such a big guy. And um, when he finally came round, um, he was, he was, I was hugging him like a, like a baby. He was on the floor and he was crying. And I said, Matt, you've got to find another drug because this one isn't working for you anymore. Mm. So maybe I didn't do enough. Maybe none of us did enough. But drinking's so acceptable. What, what do you say when you go, oh, I've had a really tough day. Oh, I'm going to go home and have a bottle of wine. Everyone goes, oh, good on you. That's great. Yeah, good for you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we all need to take some sort of responsibility when we see somebody struggling to, to step in with love, not with judgment, and try and help. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for for reaching out to us, Helen. I know it can't be easy to talk about these things. It's not, it's not distant history. This is all in the last four years. And I know that you, you know, not not long after he passed away, you two went sober, and you've been sober for three years, which is awesome. I'm so glad yes. that that the podcast has done a little bit to help. Oh no, massively. Oh, thank you. Well, I hope that by yeah sharing this story, that it will help. You know, either. You know, we're not just talking about the armed forces for this story. We're talking about someone whose brother or sister or mum or dad is is, is over drinking and, and people feel helpless to know what to do. It's obviously people who are leaving the army or people who have experienced trauma. I hope it sort of reaches all of those people looking for answers and hopefully, you know, might, might, might help save a life like Matt's. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It's been nice to talk about him. Wow, so there's the wonderful Helen. I was rocked a few times by her story and that desperate feeling of not knowing how to help. I can only imagine what it's like to watch someone you love slowly lose a battle with alcohol. She was wonderful and put so much time and research into this conversation to make it as useful as possible for anyone listening. So I'm really grateful for her and want to say a huge thank you on behalf of everyone. Next, we want to take you from Helen's story about her brother to someone who has helped people living with addiction her whole career. Pam Diamond has worked as an addiction nurse specialist for over 30 years. Most of her work has been focused on helping those in the armed forces conquer their addictions. She really is the dream guest for this episode. We struck gold. We began by discussing the difficulties that veterans face when first leaving the army and entering civilian life. So the boundaries in the military are very strict. So therefore, when people leave, you know, they, they can be all over the place. So there's a there's a bit of a before, during and after, I think. But not with everyone. Where I'd love to start is what a day in the life of an addiction nurse looks like. So I'm sure that you have to treat every patient differently. But typically, if someone walks in to see you, how does that session play out? It would depend whether it was a new patient or whether it was somebody that I'm already working with but you know the first thing is to obviously engage with the person and I think if it's an initial appointment that's my main thrust of that appointment is to engage and try and help that person to be at ease especially if they are within the military environment because it's probably taken them a lot to get Mm -hmm. to me 
And do they have to reach out to you or do they get sent by GPs like you mentioned? How do they sort of come to your door? I will accept referrals from every direction as long as the person is aware of it and motivated to do something. And how often are these people that you're seeing still in the military or how often have they left and are dealing with you know PTSD symptoms after that time? So my caseload at the moment is two thirds veteran and a third still in the military environment. But I, I would suggest the the PTSD issue can sometimes be a bit of a red herring. So um, I'm not disputing at all that there is PTSD out there because of course there is. But I think unfortunately sometimes the media jumps on that first without seeing a bigger picture mm-hmm. and in my experience quite often people that I encounter in, in the veteran community that, that have coexisting issues such as PTSD and alcohol dependence they were quite often a heavy drinker or problem drinker before the issues with PTSD occurred. So what do you think of the people that you do see who come to you with some sort of addiction issue? What do you think is the root cause of many of those that come to your door? We're all really complex creatures and therefore in addiction, which I feel is extremely complex, that it tends to be multifactorial and quite often... I think it's about the type of person, the personality type of the individual. So at the moment, I'm dealing with a, a military and former military population. So it's the type of people that gravitate towards that environment. So they're likely to be risk takers, boundary pushers, which, which can be fantastic if channeled in the right area, as we all know. Quite a lot of them are perfectionists high achievers but when they find themselves unable to channel that or or don't even understand that that aspect of their personality quite often they can find different ways to whether it's self-soothe whether it's understand themselves but but generally the the culture of the military can quite often allow people to find themselves using alcohol more than they would have done in a different environment. So I think there's there's two things that I'm always not looking for, but certainly alive to, and that is the person's personality type and traits and how that has manifested in the community, in the military or not. But generally the people that I see have developed issues either pre-joining or within their time in the military. Do you think there is a drinking culture within the military? I think there certainly has been over the years. I think if you look at the rum tot and, you know, if we look at the history of the military, why alcohol can sometimes be used, there's the camaraderie, there's the cohesion, that, you know, there's lots of positives that people perceive in alcohol and if if you think that 
generally the military culture or late teens, early 20s, then were, were, were very impressionable. And if you put together impressionable people and an environment that makes it sometimes easy to indulge and overindulge, if that's the right word, mm -hmm. for the wrong person, as in the person that's vulnerable to developing issues, which I, I guess we could all be, at different points for different reasons, then it, it's a potential recipe for disaster. Have you, is that something you've seen change over the years that you've been working in this field? Yeah, the, the UK culture is changing in terms of its relationship with alcohol and obviously the, the military recruits from that culture. So the younger personnel aren't as interested in using alcohol. Now, I'm not saying that they're not interested in other things that, that we might not feel are healthy or beneficial. Mm -hmm, of course. Uh, but I think the culture has definitely shifted away from the old binge style drinking, you know, where gangs of service personnel would be going out drinking together several nights a week. That, that seems to have changed. But that's not to say that there aren't still alcohol issues. I think there's more people drinking in isolation now, younger people in the military. Gosh, well, that's encouraging to hear if that, if that is true. It feels as if the world is talking about mental health more than ever, but I'm not sure if this is necessarily true of those in the armed forces. You know, they're trained to kill and to be brave. So how challenging is it to help a veteran who is struggling with an addiction but might not be inclined to reach out for help? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point, Hamish, because I think historically the veteran population is stereotypically a male, older person. That's changed over the years, but we still have clearly older male veterans who do find it hard to ask for help. So I've done a, a, a lot of different types of campaigns both official and unofficial to try and encourage people and demystify destigmatize um and, and also uh, encourage vulnerability you know it, uh, if you put the word vulnerable with what you've just described mm. military personnel as it you know it's kind of it, it doesn't make sense does it but clearly everyone has a vulnerability or a vulnerable side so I do a lot to try and encourage that I think the younger veterans possibly find it easier to mm -hmm. reach in because it's more or more normal than maybe the older community it's more acceptable sorry not normal acceptable yeah. how do you coax that out of the older community I mean is it a case of numerous sessions and building trust and eventually that the walls come down is there is there a shortcut is there a trick to that tends to be word of mouth um the the military community is quite closed but it only takes it's, it's it's a strange phenomena once you kind of accepted by you know I'm, I'm talking specifically a a certain aspect of the military but once you're accepted by one it's kind of oh well she's okay and, and it works so go to her and it's almost like a it's like a well if my mate says it it must be true it must be that trust thing in the military mm -hmm. i think 
but but there's a lot about trying to meet people where they are as in both physically so go out to places where people are so you know events and meetings etc but also meet people where they are in terms of their want to change or need to change but it I I have to modify my approach obviously to every person which is right because we're all so different and I imagine you know getting someone to speak vulnerably is the first domino in potentially getting them to address an addiction issue but there's a lot of steps to take in between those two so you know once you've got someone talking what's your next plan of action I put the addiction to one side to start with I want to know about them because too often as we know when somebody's in a in a place with a with a habit that they don't want to be that that it feels that that's the defining characteristic and it's not so I'm interested in the person I want to know about them you know I I know there's an issue because that's why they're in front of me so to try and engage with them I want I want to understand about them but I also give them my background as well because I think it's really really bizarre we as professionals we kind of can get it's probably quite arrogant, I suppose, where we just expect, well, that's what we need to do. So people need to tell us. Mm. Well, if someone asked me the questions I ask people, I really wouldn't feel in a place to tell most people. So it's all about trying to be human. I think mm. I think that's my my baseline, just be human. And then once once that person feels a level of comfort, confidence, whatever it is. Then we move on to the okay. What what do you want? What what do you want? Not not what's your problem. What do you want to achieve? Because it's not it's not what I want to achieve. It's not what your partner who's made you come here wants you to achieve. And that you know that can often be a big issue. It's what do you want? Because we all know unless unless we want to make some change, then we won't. We might try, but it's probably not going to happen. How often do they say, I want to give up alcohol or drugs? Or how often they go, well, I'm just here because I was sent here. I don't actually want to be here. I don't actually have a problem. And there's denial and minimising the issue. Yeah. <laughs> that that tends to happen when somebody else has initiated the referral. Or not. maybe not initiated, that's the wrong word, but forced <laughs> the person getting through the door but but then I see it as okay a bit more of a challenge so one of the things I do then is and I would say that it's not the most frequent presentation I see because fortunately I've worked hard to lower all the barriers so hopefully people come when it's more appropriate but even when somebody I know somebody doesn't really want to be there I'll you know I'll just say okay well you don't even have to speak to me. So completely give them the control. And rather than, I think, because in addiction, in, in the field of addiction, I think it, it's really easy to for the power to be shifted. And, and in relationships, you know, at, at home, that person's probably feeling 
that they've got to be subservient or less dominant or, or whatever. Well, there's, I don't need any of that. I just need, I need a level ground, if that makes sense. Of course. So re regardless of why they're there or why they've come through the door, I, I try and get off on the, the right foot because there might be a chance. You never know. <laughs> it sounds as if the kind of job that on a good day is inspiring and self-fulfilling and on a bad day would be incredibly disheartening and depressing. How do you look after your own mental health in, in seeing this sort of roller coaster of emotions of every person that walks in? That's a good question. Um, I've, I've done this for a long time and at different periods it's been more difficult than others. I try hard to look after myself. That doesn't always work. So in terms of trying to be boundaried, you know, that, that's a big thing because, again, the addiction field isn't straightforward. It's not a nine-to-five eight to four job it's uh it's as we as we know <laughs> any time of day but but certainly not night i i got asked a question the other week when i was i was doing a presentation to a command structure and i was asked do you ever see somebody and think there's no hope mm. i said no absolutely not so in in terms of what you've just said about depressing and disheartening I think I get more frustrated and then I try and channel that into, okay, how can it be different? But also accept that if somebody doesn't want to work on, on whatever's going on, then that's okay. Mm. It's not their time. I think there's a lot of frustration. For example, the call I've just had off the GP to manage the person who's drunk and it's uh, nine o'clock in the morning here in the UK. They're saying, well, you know, what, what do I do with them? This is so frustrating. You know, well, we've sorted out an appointment with you. I said, you know, it's okay. Just leave him be. Make sure he's safe. Let him sleep. We can't do it. Is there any point you speaking to him at 11 o'clock? No, not at all. Because I can't get a valid assessment. Why would anyone want to speak to a clinician <laughs> when they're absolutely hammered and have just had a weekend of it? So my... Quite often my frustration is with other people and not the person in the middle, ironically. Why do you do it? What brought you to this? I always knew I wanted to work with people from probably from kind of early teens, but I didn't really know which route. I thought I would end up in like probation or, you know, people who were in trouble. <laughs> ironically, addiction is probably the same. And then when I did my nurse training in 1991 my mental health nurse training I had to do a special placement and I picked and back then they had inpatient addiction units and I grew up in um, Merseyside in the UK which at the time was was really quite chaotic heroin hit where I grew up in the early 80s it was it was carnage so I was I was really curious about addiction, really curious. And I picked this special placement and I fell in love with it. Uh, I just felt like I found where I was where I was meant to work. And from then on I worked in NHS addictions, uh, NHS crisis which generally 
has an addiction element or a substance element at some point. And then ended up finding myself in the military environment, which is different again. It's so exciting to have someone with your background on the podcast because because of what we do for work a lot of people write to us and say I'm struggling with an addiction what should I do and we are not qualified we are podcasters so we say well you've got to get mm. you know, maybe get some therapy and maybe read a few books on it or listen to a podcast on it and you know we sort of throw all of our ideas at the wall in the hope that one of them sticks but from your experience you know and it's impossible to give an answer to what cures addiction but are there, you know, is there a trend or two or three things that seem to come up more often than anything else? If there was a sort of one size fits all solution, what is the key to beating an addiction? I think being completely open with whoever you find yourself in front of. So the first point is try and understand yourself, what, what it is you want, what you're not happy with what are the consequences of your behaviour? Because again, if you look at change, none of us change our behaviour until we don't like the consequences generally <laughs> and we understand them. So I, I would ask somebody to think about that first and, and not collude with their own thinking and then try and find the most appropriate person to speak to initially you know there's so much information out there I think it's I think sometimes it's mind-blowing it's too much there's there's too many places so obviously your audience will be all over the place try and find the most appropriate person you can speak to if you don't know who that is find an online uh, support mechanism and do the chat function with them because they will have ideas just speak to one person initially and then try and but try and pick that that person well because you know you there's lots of people out there that won't be right but find someone with some experience some knowledge and if they're not for you ask them where should I go next so it, it's all about advice and then being open mm -hmm. because alcohol particularly it lies and it it helps us lie so we need to be really open. What I love about the work of the Royal Marines Charity is that you are there not only to help the veterans, but also their family, who typically feel the effect of any substance misuse more than anyone else. And we get lots of emails from people concerned about the drinking of their loved ones. That's probably the email that we get the most often. So what advice would you give to someone who's in that situation? They're not the one with the problem, but their husband, wife, son, brother, whoever it is, is struggling. I would have a really frank and honest conversation with them about the consequences of their behaviour upon you or the people around you. Because quite often I think we are frightened of obsessing them. We're frightened of their response. We're just frightened. Maybe it's not safe to do that. And if it isn't, then obviously don't. But if it is safe to have that frank, honest discussion about, and about consequences, then pick your moment. Obviously, don't do that when the person has been drinking, you know, all evening or whatever. Try and pick the best moment. And 
I know this is really hard, but try not to get into the lecturing mode or, you know, it, it's it's generally from a place of concern. But when when any of us are asked about our drinking, so if a GP asks people about their drinking, there tends to be a standard response because for some reason we automatically get resistant or defensive and that is that's the risk when you are speaking to somebody about their issue so I think it's setting the scene you know please listen to me this is because I care so set the scene and then have that open and frank discussion not you know not not shouting etc if you can and then try and support them to the next step but it's really really hard quite often the people around the individual are ready for help more than the individual yeah that seems to be the recurring theme really until they're ready it sounds like you're just Mm. sort of you know shouting at a wall you know it sounds like you're not going to get much response but it's interesting to look at it in that way and go this is how it's affecting me rather than go and get therapy or go and read this book or get sober you know being less authoritarian and more this is the way it's affecting my life the the consequences of your actions yeah I think a really good question if you if you get an in with somebody whoever that is is what do you need from me to try and help you Mm -hmm. what do you need me to do to try and help you because you're trying to empower somebody with a, an addiction issue tends to feel that they're always in trouble they're always getting told off they're always messing up they you know and obviously I'm, I'm smiling because I'm thinking about some of the military stuff being in trouble but you know people who end up in a very bad place with dependency they're used to being told that they are not worth anything or feeling that they're not worth anything so this is trying to about trying to empower and saying what 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 do we need to do to to you know to try and get things back on track yeah, i think that's really quite powerful there she is the wonderful wise and insightful pam diamond there's something very calming about someone who speaks slowly with a Liverpudlian accent. Oh, yes. Something about that that just makes my heart rate mm. calm down. Mm. Probably perfect for an addiction nurse specialist. What I loved about my chat with Pam was that she has seen it all. Nothing phases her, and she was able to share so many nuggets of information that could help all of us. It doesn't matter whether you're in the military or have nothing to do with it at all. What this boiled down to is how do we overcome an addiction, and what do I do if someone I love is struggling? What an inspiring woman and career. Incredible. It's important to say at this point that there is a dangerous narrative of the broken veteran that seems to spread its way through a lot of the media and society in general. The truth is only some that leave the army come out with PTSD and only some people that get PTSD have an alcohol use disorder. But the narrative is loud and I don't want to be here to feed into that because I totally disagree with it. The crucial moment when someone leaves the army and tries to re-enter civilian life is hard enough without these narratives. And the struggle with this is the genesis of so many problems with addiction. Those that pass through the military are some of the most brilliant people you could ever dream of meeting. Like my dad. And my granddad and my Uncle and Tom. pretty much all of your members of your all family, of my family, it turns yeah, out. And yeah. me. 
<laughs> We're not generalising here, but it's really important to shine a light on this subject because it affects so many people around the world. Let me just take this moment to thank both Helen and Pam for their contributions today. I also spoke to two friends of mine who have been in the military or are still in, uh, but would rather not speak on the record in the hope that I'd covered some of the most important points. They helped me with some of the questions and oh, creating of this episode. You do a lot of research in this podcast. People don't realise, Hamish, do they? This podcast took me more time than probably three put together yeah this was hamish's mission this one yeah so i hope it's three times better than average i think it will if be. not bad time per quality ratio <laughs> yeah i think it's going to be amazing but like we said this is just as much an episode about the military as it is about how to best overcome an addiction so we hope you got something from it whatever your situation so i would like to end this podcast with a k tempest quote because they are my favorite and perfectly sum up how i feel about this subject so this is from their poem ballad of a hero which i'll encourage all of you to listen to i'll put a link to it in the show notes it's how they open their tiny desk concert you know tiny desk concerts you've watched i don't know what you're talking about oh okay tiny desk is on youtube where they get a world star oh yes i love tiny desk yes i know exactly so this was the opening bit of their tiny desk and it was a poem called the ballad of a hero one of the lines is i don't support these wars my son i don't believe they're right but i do support the soldiers who go off to war and fight and i think that is exactly where we should be coming from in terms of our empathy and uh, support for anyone who's been through the army whether or not you agree with wars or not any of it doesn't really matter mm. let's support soldiers who are struggling yeah totally agree support anyone who's struggling that's i mean a that's good point. yeah anyone who's struggling and isn't talking about it i mean that's why we talk about things on this podcast is because we we're trying to influence you to talk about your problems too i think aren't we yes and you thought of something that you'd be good at as well something in the army that i'd be good at is peeling potatoes that's it. Yes, that's about it, though. I don't know if you get any badges for that. You know how you get people here on Anzac Day with lots of medals? Surely there's a potato badge. Potato peeler medal? Yeah, extraordinaire. Yeah, medal, yeah. Maybe I want be medals. A, maybe it'd be a, a potato badge. Yeah. That'd be nice. <laughs> I could just carry a potato in my pocket. I do that anyway. People will avoid you I'm more than they already do. I'm basically in the army. <laughs> I carry a potato in my pocket every day, Hamish. And there is your knowledge of the army. I'm basically in the army. I carry a potato in my pocket every yeah. day. Do you want to see it? Your, your grandparents and parents taught you nothing about what it's actually Here it like. Here it is. Here it is. <laughs> Big, heavy potato that you yeah. carry around. Yeah, there you go. I always go. thought that was the noise of your testicles when you sat down. <sighs> Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> If you're questioning your relationship with booze, you're struggling to moderate, or your hangovers are causing anxiety, it might be time to reach out for some support. Yeah, just talk to a mate about how you're feeling, contact a local doctor, find an AA or sobriety group. Fix got one. Yeah, just head to www.cuppa.community. Remember, if you're questioning yourself, it might be time to seek support. Even though this journey can be awkward, it is definitely worth it. And if you've enjoyed the Sober Awkward podcast, don't forget to review it, rate it, and share it with your mates. Do they have to share it with their mates? Yeah, of course they do. I'm not doing this for nothing, Hamish. Bloody hell. How do they share it? Hi there. 
I wanted to tell you about a podcast that I think every single one of you will benefit from. It's called Therapy Works and it's hosted by me, Julia Samuel. I'm a best-selling author and psychotherapist. I invite you into my therapy room where I speak to either a known or unknown guest. Topics range from the difficulties of divorce, a life-changing illness, to the struggles of motherhood. Search Therapy Works now wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, as you probably know, my comedy memoir, A Thousand Wasted Sundays, is officially out. All my magnificent fuck-uppery in one awkward hit. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy, it's now available from all good bookstores. We always say all good bookstores, don't we? Yeah. Are, there, are there bad bookstores? There's probably ones with moody, moody what? sellers. Oh, yeah, really yeah. depressed librarian folks. Yes, yes, okay, yes, good, yes. Good. So there are probably some, but we're only storing it in the good ones. It's only made it into the goodies. Yeah. You can also get it from all good online retailers. The print version and ebook are out now, and the audio book will be available in March. I've been writing my memoir for five years. It will make you laugh, cry and cringe and hopefully inspire a few people to reconsider their relationship with booze. If you love the podcast, then I think you'll love the book, even if I do say so myself. Hamish has read it. What did you think? I feel like I know a little bit too much about you now, to be honest, Vic. Look, I really loved it. It was hilarious and surprisingly moving, but I feel like I've seen you naked in a literary sense. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, that's worrying. Yeah. Yeah. From an emotional point of view, seriously, it wobbled my teeny-weeny wooden heart, Vic. Okay. (laughs) My teeny little wooden heart. His his wooden heart is broken. Anyway, so if you do manage to get your filthy mitts on a copy, please do me a favour and head to goodreads.com and give me a review. 
Doing that will help me get it out there to those that need a bit of sober support. So there you have it. My story, unwanted warts and all. Come and get awkward with me. Not to be too demanding or anything, but seriously, go and buy it Yeah, now. go and buy it. Go and buy it right now. Yeah, don't just tell your friends. Buy it and then buy your friends one or two. Yeah, yeah, don't give them a copy. Yeah. Buy it, yeah. And you know what? Don't be careful where you store it. If you lose it, you can always buy another yeah, five. Yeah, buy another one. Yeah. <laughs> 